Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists. And I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. Here's the objectives for the COPD portion of the talk. And just like in asthma, kind of what's new, where we're we going in the next few minutes with this, there was a substantial update in 2019 to gold as well. Um, not as much in 2020. 2019 was kind of the big year for that. Um, they update these each year for those of you guys that, you know, that, that are aware of that and follow along. Um, really, it was a lot of the figures change, kind of simplification, some new algorithms. We'll go through that. Um, some other statements that were noteworthy in 2020, the ATS published their own pharmacologic management. So I'll talk a little bit about that. And the ERS, European Respiratory Society, also published an ICS withdrawal kind of uh, statement, which has been very helpful. We'll also talk about some of the mounting evidence and the changing role uh, of inhaled corticosteroids in COPD and how that's evolved uh, over the, the last few years. Uh, Dr. Woods will talk about some of the, the momentum with peak inspiratory flow and other um, kind of techniques to, to select inhalers for patients. And then we'll wrap up with some of the comorbidities and the importance that they play and the management and reducing hospital readmissions and things like that associated with COPD. So this is the management uh, cycle. This is a new figure in, in 2019, a cycle or, or a spiral, I think, kind of, if you will. Dr. Woods tells me they call it a whirly-woo, but I somehow just don't think that's quite right. Um, but whatever you want to call it, it's kind of this, this spiral that works outward in. You start with initial assessment, initial management, which I'll, I'll lead off with. And then you get kind of into the, the inner revolve, you know, at the, at the center of this where you kind of continually re-review and adjust therapy. Um, just like kind of the asthma model as well it is in GINA, where we've kind of this continual review and adjustment uh, of, of your pharmacotherapy and, and risk factors and things like that. So we'll start this one off with a case. I think this is a scenario a lot of us in the hospital have seen and patients that are hospitalized with COPD. You have a patient in for an unrelated reason. So this, in this case, it's cellulitis. But you notice he's got COPD and he knows an ICS-LAMA combination, fluticasone salmeterol. So not an uncommon thing to see. But you collect some information about this patient or your student goes, they're doing a medication reconciliation, something like that. And they find that he's had COPD for two years, but he's always been on this, this medication. That he has a fairly high degree of dyspnea. So he, he, you know, he has to stop frequently and catch his breath, that sort of thing. But no indication that he's had exacerbations in the past, right? He's never been hospitalized. He hasn't taken prednisone to his knowledge in the past couple of years since he's been diagnosed with COPD. So you get to thinking, you say, well, gosh, should he have ever been placed on an inhaled corticosteroid to begin with? Is this an appropriate initial therapy for this patient? So when you look at the initial treatment algorithm, I'm kind of working with a you know, baseline knowledge here that most people have seen this. Um, so I'm not going to really go through it. I think most people understand how to use it. It's been in gold for a while. What they did this year is they simplified it. They gave kind of fewer options. They used to have pathways within each each group. So I think it's really nice. But you remember our patient, he's, he's higher symptoms. So he's going to be on the right side and he's a low risk. So he's group B. 
So really in a patient like that, that's a symptom predominant, low exacerbation patient, there's no real role for an inhaled corticosteroid based on this initial treatment algorithm. So in essence, he should not have been placed on an inhaled corticosteroid to start with. And then we have the question of, you know, can we get him off of that inhaled corticosteroid and whatnot? So the key points when we talk about initial therapy, like I said, we're not going to spend much time here. We'll spend more time on modifying and how we can select appropriate devices and things like that. We think those are a little bit more important um, today in the COPD talk. But the mainstay has to be bronchodilators. Just like inhaled corticosteroids are in asthma, bronchodilators have to be the backbone of your COPD therapy. And any patient that's having symptoms, you should use bronchodilators. You should prefer those um, Preference I give, Dr. Woods and I talked about this before, we both kind of tend to prefer a llama as the initial agent. They have, you know, better data with reduction in exacerbations, and most patients are going to end up on both of them anyway. Uh, so why not start them on a llama? That's just kind of usually what we do. If you're picking a single drug regimen, we tend to prefer that. Um, Many, many patients are started on ICS lab as their first-line therapy, and they don't need it. So identifying those patients is something you can do with this initial algorithm to kind of think, you know, if you look back and how long have they been diagnosed with headaches, if they're not having exacerbations, then, then let's, let's get them off the ICS if we can. And we'll talk about ways to withdraw those therapies as well in just a minute. Always, just like ASWA, COPD's plan will catch up with them. They've been very good about education for a number of years and involving patients in therapeutic decisions. COPD's catching up with that. And so um, the guidelines are recommending more and more education and patient uh, involvement in therapy. So we'll spend some time with therapeutic modification in just a minute. And this is the algorithms that were introduced. And if you look at the left side, I'll focus on that first. This is the dyspnea side. So you pick what's predominant in the patient. Are they symptom prone or are they exacerbation prone? So if they're, they're complaining of symptoms, if symptoms is their predominant complaint, then you go to the left side and really you're pushing bronchodilators. So you're, you're focusing on getting them on dual therapy. And if you look, nothing is pushing towards inhaled steroids, reflumolase, azithromycin, things like that. Those drugs are are used to reduce exacerbations. If patients aren't having those, let's keep them on bronchodilator therapy. So that's where this is. If you look at the exacerbation side of the algorithm, and in fact, if a patient is having both, then you're going to treat them for the exacerbation side. So that's what the, the table recommends, that if they have both symptoms, uh, high level of symptoms and exacerbations, then use the exacerbation side of this algorithm. But, but basically, it's meant for follow-up. When you inherit a patient, like most of us do, that are already on therapies, you kind of start from that point um, and you assess those. So if they're having exacerbations, you have the pathway of you know, bronchodilators and when to use an inhaled corticosteroid. And that's where Dr. Woods is going to pick us up, pick up for us and talk to us a little bit about inhaled corticosteroids and how they fit in uh, today with COPD. How are you doing, ASHP? Um... So picking up with the evolving role of inhaled corticosteroids, I think it's important that we establish a history of corticosteroids. Uh, no matter your practice setting, inpatient, ambulatory care, community pharmacy, if you care for patients with COPD, you should be aware, and I hope well aware, uh, that there's been a goal-driven, uh, we'll call it a lean, away from the use of inhaled corticosteroids in many, if not most, of our patients with COPD over the past three or four years. That push, lean, move, shift, you choose your word, uh, that doesn't come as a result of questionable efficacy uh, in these patients. Um, we know that inhaled corticosteroids quote unquote work, and we know that there's a small subset of patients uh, in which they work incredibly well. 
we know uh, from data published in the late 1990s, early 2000s, that uh, inhaled corticosteroids uh, in comparison to placebo uh, decreases symptoms, uh, decreases symptom burden, but also decreases the rate of exacerbation. Although inhaled corticosteroids in comparison to placebo doesn't offer, uh, alter uh, decline of FEV1, so it doesn't alter the course of the disease, nor does it alter uh, mortality or improve mortality related to COPD. Uh, we also know from studies in the mid-2000s that when you add an inhaled corticosteroid uh, or long-active beta agonist, rather, to an inhaled corticosteroid, uh, that the combination outperforms the monocomponents or the individual components. Uh, and LABA and ICS in combination improves lung function, uh, it decreases the patient's uh, symptom burden, and it certainly reduces exacerbations. And you can visualize that data on the next few uh, slides here, some forest plots uh, that, that I dug up. So clearly here, inhaled corticosteroids reduce the uh, rate of acute exacerbation of COPD. Uh, when, again, we add a long-active beta agonist to an inhaled corticosteroid, uh, the sum is mightier or greater than the, the, the parts. Uh, we can see that the inhaled corticosteroid plus a long-active beta agonist uh, reduces acute exacerbations of COPD more so than an inhaled corticosteroid as monotherapy or LABA monotherapy. Uh, and more importantly, with that combination uh, that may not be true with inhaled corticosteroids alone, uh, inhaled corticosteroids plus a long-active beta agonist uh, decrease the rate of moderate and severe exacerbation of COPD or and severe exacerbations of COPD the severe exacerbations being exacerbations that require hospitalization. So if it's if the benefit of inhaled corticosteroids are firmly established and everything in medicine and everything in pharmacy uh, practice is risk versus benefit, then this shift or move away from inhaled corticosteroids in the gold report is secondary to risk. Now, if we were in New Orleans right now, I would I assure you I would take the opportunity uh, to, to employ some audience participation, and I throw out a question. Uh, what are some adverse effects of inhaled corticosteroids? Hands would shoot up all over the room, I hope, and a microphone would find one of those hands, and someone would mutter into that microphone, thrush. That's cool. I see you, uh, and that's all well and good. That's fair. If you practice in the geriatric population, an older population, I have an uh, older population of patients that you see, you may say osteopenia or osteoporosis. Uh, I see that as well. If you practice in pediatrics, maybe it's a growth retardation. Maybe you lose a, a half an inch or a quarter of an inch or something along those lines over the course of your life. All those things, again, are well and good and fair uh, and, and correct. Uh, but the shift away from inhaled corticosteroids in patients with COPD per gold is secondary to an increased risk of respiratory tract infections. It's upper respiratory tract infections, and then it's certainly lower respiratory tract infections uh, or pneumonia. So in this section of the presentation, Dr. Pinner and I have entitled, I love forest plots. I'm a fan of forest plots. Uh, you can, again, visualize the data. Uh, when you look at inhaled corticosteroids and incidence or risk of upper respiratory tract infection, you can see that there's a clear risk there, and that's an inhaled corticosteroid at any dose. Now, when you look at high-dose inhaled corticosteroids and risk of upper respiratory tract infection, uh, maybe the risk is a little bit more pronounced, even though the odds ratio uh, isn't that different. Uh, when we think about inhaled corticosteroids and pneumonia, and all of these studies with inhaled corticosteroids, uh, 
quick aside, I'm moving my mouse. I have no idea if you can see it. If you can't, I'm sorry. Uh, if you can, cool. Back to the presentation. <laughs> Inhaled corticosteroids and pneumonia, clearly there's a risk there. Um, and as I flip through the following slides that look at doses of inhaled corticosteroids, I want to quantify that risk a bit to you. Uh, per several published meta-analysis and or systematic reviews, the risk of pneumonia with inhaled corticosteroids is versus patients who do not take inhaled corticosteroids is roughly 50 to 60%. So you can see high-dose uh, inhaled corticosteroids, there's most definitely a risk of pneumonia. Uh, it doesn't really matter the dose. There's a risk there, but it's much more pronounced with higher doses. Uh, and one of the last points I want to make about inhaled corticosteroids uh, and pneumonia, it's there's a higher incidence or higher risk of pneumonia when patients take fluticasone in comparison to budesonide. And it's about a 75% increased risk in fluticasone uh, inducing or causing or leading to a pneumonia versus a budesonide. And you can see that here pretty clearly on these two forest plots. So summary here of inhaled corticosteroids and pneumonia, you can see when we look at classes of medication uh, that there's an increased risk of pneumonia with inhaled corticosteroids or inhaled corticosteroid-containing therapies that is not there or not present with bronchodilators, llamas, lavas, or llama-lavas in combination. You hopefully picked up on uh, me qualifying uh, some of my statements with most patients or some patients. Um, and most patients or some patients, not most patients, but some patients will derive benefit from inhaled corticosteroids. Uh, or patients with COPD will derive benefit from inhaled corticosteroids. Uh, per my estimation, per my research and reading, approximately one in every four patients with COPD uh, will derive benefit from inhaled corticosteroids because they fit the refractory asthma clinical phenotype uh, in COPD. Uh, if they fit that refractory asthma clinical phenotype, uh, then their airway inflammation is more eosinophilic driven than neutrophilic. And if we can all harken back to pharmacy school and how inhaled corticosteroids work, they work at least in part and probably primarily by decreasing eosinophilic airway inflammation. So going to drop it back over to Dr. Penner to discuss um, why we're starting to use serum eosinophils to direct our inhaled corticotherapy, inhaled corticosteroid therapy uh, in patients with COPD. Thank you. So I, I think, you know, maybe the first indication that some of y'all saw of eosinophils being incorporated into decision-making with COPD was in, in 2019. Uh, there have been several subgroup analyses, post-hoc analyses, things like that published, they were starting to indicate that, that this was the case. And I, I think, um, like Dr. Woods was saying, the blood eosinophils, you know, they, they are a, a marker for sputum and tissue eosinophilia, which we know um, generally responds in the asthma population to inhaled corticosteroids tremendously well. And so could that serve as a marker uh, for sputum and tissue eosinophilia? Could we target that and use that to our advantage to define a subset of patients with COPD who would garner the, the most benefit um, from an inhaled corticosteroid, knowing that, um, like Dr. Woods went through, that they are effective at reducing exacerbations, but they do have a substantial risk or a very real risk of pneumonia. So if there's a way that we could target who we, who we prescribe these agents to, um, they're most likely to gain benefit, and, you know, um, then that would be 
ideal. There is some uncertainty whether high blood eosinophils predicts an exacerbation risk. In some cohorts, that's the case, that patients with higher eosinophilia have a higher exacerbation risk. In other cohorts, it's kind of a wash. So we don't really know yet. We, we don't have great, you know, defined data yet on, you know, exactly how variable the eosinophil counts are. They do vary some, and that seems to be the higher the, the level of blood eosinophilia, the higher the variability. So that's still a little bit to be determined, uh, but we'll talk a little bit about what we know so far with, with this. I've got a few, you know, similar bar graphs here. Again, like Dr. Wood's saying, I'm moving my mouse around, but I think that's not really uh, translating to you guys. But you've got here on this one, as you move to the right, your eosinophil count, your percentages in your differential are increasing. The pink regimen is the regimen without a steroid. So fluticasone, volantrol is in the dark blue. You see the exacerbation rates is pretty consistent despite increasing levels of eosinophils. And in the, the regimen without it, it, it increases dramatically as you go up. Same sort of thing here. The light blue is the regimen here. This is a dual therapy, eumeclidinium and volantarol, and you kind of pay attention to the pink and the light blue. The pink here is flutigazone and volantarol. So um, in that regimen, the, the exacerbation rate is preserved, and it, and it jumps up again there as the eosinophil count gets up above 150. Above 300, it's pretty um, uh, consistently clear that Benefit is derived from inhaled corticosteroid. Above 100, it's a little bit less certain. So in this one, that's even a little bit conservative of a, of a break point. You still see that difference there. Triple therapy, again, tends to win out most of the time, and that's the dark blue. It was consistent. What I kind of titled this one as a fair fight, what you have here is indicatorol glycopyrrolate in the dark blue. That's a dual bronchodilator, llama-llama combo. And this is what most people point to when they indicate that um, – you ought to do dual bronchodilator therapy before you escalate inhaled corticosteroids. So when we go back to that algorithm the minute, you'll see there is an option if people have eosinophilic uh, COPD that you could start LABA ICS, you could escalate to that, or you could do dual bronchodilator. So this is the FLAME study. This is the one where the dual bronchodilator therapy outperformed um, LABA ICS regardless of the eosinophil count. It significantly reduced the exacerbation rate uh, regardless of the eosinophil count. So that's what you know, people point to is say, hey, we need to maximize our bronchodilators that have you know, low or minimal impact of these ADRs um, compared to the inhaled corticosteroid. So this is our patient case before. He's back now. He's had an exacerbation, second one this year. He's been changed to dual bronchodilator therapy, still having symptoms. But the question is now, what if he has high blood eosinophilia? What if he has low blood, blood eosinophils? So we go back to our algorithm, and I'm really kind of bypassing that, that quick shift to the right. I'm assuming that, you know, I'm, I'm taking the pathway that most people do of adding two bronchodilators and then illustrating that gold gives us the option. If their eosinophils are quite low, they place value that it's unlikely that this is eosinophilic driven, it's unlikely that they're going to have benefit from an inhaled corticosteroid, and therefore you have the option to consider something like reflumolast or azithromycin in lieu of a corticosteroid. So keep that in mind. If it's high, consider doing an ICS first, and that's, that's their stance. I said American Thoracic Society came out with a statement recently, so how do they compare uh, to the gold recommendation? So ATS has a slightly different approach and, and the rationale is very good and they place, um, you know, 
some emphasis on what Dr. Woods is talking about, the risk of pneumonia. Um, they categorize that as being, you know, a substantial risk like he has, and that any recommendation based solely on eosinophil should not be made. And so what they do is they go back to basically what we're kind of talking about is that patients that are having repeated exacerbations, despite good bronchodilator therapy, lobotoloma combination, if you're having exacerbations, then you get a chance with an inhaled corticosteroid. They don't dictate necessarily that, you know, you have to have a certain level of eosinophils, uh, eosinophils to warrant an inhaled corticosteroid. So gold gives you that option of patients with very low eosinophils to bypass it, whereas ATS kind of moves through uh, the inhaled corticosteroid regardless of, of eosinophils. They acknowledge them. Uh, they acknowledge that the data is pretty strong and that patients that have high levels of eosinophils and are having exacerbations probably would benefit um, from an inhaled corticosteroid. So that brings us to reflumolas. The only, only real slide I want to talk about here, but I wanted to emphasize that if you make the decision to go to reflumolas, that you make damn sure you've got the right patient for this drug. Um, if you look at the 124-125 trials here on reflumolas, they had a highly selected population in these studies. And they're the only two studies in the reflumolas clinical trial program that showed reductions in exacerbations. They chose patients that had severe COPD with a chronic bronchitis phenotype and also with frequent exacerbations. So when they didn't find that group of patients, that highly selected group of patients, they did not have reductions in exacerbations. So if you look at the others, those didn't exist. So that's what I mean. If you're going to use this drug, if you're going to bypass a steroid because they've got low eosinophils, make sure that they fit this population or they probably also won't get benefit um, from that drug. Now, what about our patient before that was put on an inhaled steroid? How do we withdraw these? Can we do that safely? Many patients are inappropriately initiated on those, up to 70%. We have several uh, studies now that indicate that this can be done safely. They don't include patients with frequent exacerbations, but why would you want to withdraw a steroid if they're having frequent exacerbations? That's not something we would do anyway. Um, most of them withdrew it abruptly, um, so it seems to be safe even despite that. But in patients that had high rates of eosinophils or high eosinophil counts, you had increased rates of exacerbation. So in the sunset cohort, 86% increased risk of an exacerbation following discontinuation of ICS. Same thing in the wisdom cohort. The only exception is in the bottom category here. Patients that have one exacerbation or less that had high eosinophils were able to be withdrawn safely. So there's a potential that you could withdraw there. The ERS, in their recent statement, they had a nice uh, a paper on this, about withdrawal of steroids. They give a conditional recommendation for that group that has few exacerbations and low eosinophils. They recommend that if you have high levels of eosinophils that you continue inhaled corticosteroids regardless of their exacerbation rates. Whereas the American Thoracic Society's stance, they just have a statement in their newest uh, recommendations that all patients on triple therapy, so LABA, LAMA, ICS, can be withdrawn from ICS if they've had no exacerbations in the previous year. So with that, I'll kick it back to Dr. Woods. Thank you, uh, Dr. Penner, enjoying this conversation. So as a part of the COPD management cycle, or as Dr. Penner, not I, has called it a whirly whoop, uh, we as pharmacists should always seek ways to optimize a patient's pharmacotherapy. So not listed on this slide, yet should be a given, is choosing or directing the most appropriate medication class or classes based on a patient's goal grouping and then their subsequent respo response uh, to those chosen pharmacotherapies. 
leading into this first bullet point here, I am sure that many of you won't be surprised to hear that PCPs, uh, our primary care providers, get COPD therapy correct per gold, the gold report less than 50% of the time. Uh, in fact, uh, I recently read a study, a uh, publication of a survey of primary care providers in 12 different countries, including the United States, uh, that revealed less than 60% of primary care providers were aware that there was a gold report or that a gold report was updated or published on an annual basis. So our other focus, choosing the correct medication or medication class or combination of medications, uh, our other focus in optimizing, uh, optimizing inhaled pharmacotherapy in patients with COPD is ensuring appropriate inhaler technique uh, and then adherence. And Dr. Gilden referenced this some or talked about this some in patients with asthma. In regard to appropriate inhaler technique, uh, data has been published decade after decade, I know at least dating back until the 80s, uh, that patients make at least one error in administering their uh, inhaler or the aerosolized uh, inhaled medication at least 90% of the time. Um, there is always opportunity for us to educate patients in regard to inhaler technique. Again, no matter the patient care setting, uh, you can do it at, at bedside in the hospital. You can certainly do it in the ambulatory care clinic. Uh, you can do it and should be doing it uh, in the community setting. Um, in regard to errors related to inhaler technique, if we drill down a little bit and we look specifically at DPIs, at least one error is made in the DPI administration 60% of the time. Uh, and then looking at soft mist or slow mist inhalers, uh, an error is made 45 or 50% of the time, and that may be an underestimation. And speaking of uh, inhaler technique errors that patients make, approximately one third of these errors could be errors could be classified as critical errors, and those are errors that lead to suboptimal doses for patients or a patient not receiving a dose at all. So again, we should always take the opportunity, should always take every opportunity to teach patients how to use their inhalers appropriately, uh, have those patients teach back to us, and, and do that repetitive, repetitively as long as we care for those patients over and over and over again until they have it down, which most do not. So although an issue Certainly with COPD patients, cost of inhalers and apathy are not always uh, at the crux of non-adherence. Sometimes patient adherence wanes secondary to a lack of response uh, to the prescribed medication. In that regard, I feel it's important that we as pharmacists always consider optimal medication delivery uh, through assessing each patient that, that we see is peak inspiratory flow rate or PIFR. So for those of you that are not aware, Peak inspiratory flow rate or PIFR is the maximal airflow generated during a given inspiration and patients need a sufficient uh, PIFR or peak inspiratory flow rate uh, to activate their DPIs and emit the medication and get the medication where it needs to be in the lower respiratory tract. So if, if you'll nerd out with me for just a second, uh, I'm going to ask you to think about or consider medication delivery via a dry powder inhaler and then we'll just, uh, we'll use an elliptic device in this instance because it's to me, easy to visualize and should be easy to use. Uh, but a patient has their inhaler. They open uh, the inhaler to expose the mouthpiece. And at that point in time, the dry powder inside the blister uh, bowl, if you will, inside the device is available to them. And that would be considered the powder at rest. You'll notice this powder at rest 
there are medications uh, that are, are adhering to a carrier molecule. And when we talk about peak inspiratory flow, patients have to generate, generate enough force with inspiration to one, lift the medication or dilate the powder uh, from the device, but they also have to generate enough inspiratory force to dissociate the medication from the carrier molecule. Uh, the medication itself obviously is active. It is roughly three to five microns in size uh, and needs to be down in the lower respiratory tract to, to effectively do its job. If we don't, if, if we don't, if a patient doesn't generate enough inspiratory force to dissociate the medication molecule from the carrier molecule, then a lot of that medication ends up in the back of the, the patient's mouth on their tongue. A lot of patients talk about a sweet taste. Uh, typical carrier molecule certainly with Elipta is lactose, um, or it ends up in the back of the mouth on the tongue or in the back of the oropharynx, where it is obviously not going to work. Every dry powder inhaler, to my knowledge, if you dig deep enough, has a minimal peak inspiratory flow rate, uh, and that is a flow rate uh, that is set to ensure that a patient gets a sufficient uh, portion uh, or dose of their medication. They all have an optimal peak inspiratory flow rate as well, which ensures that the patient can generate that optimal peak inspiratory flow and ensures the patient gets the majority of, if not all, of their medication into lower into the lower respiratory tract where it belongs and can work. At present, uh, per literature, the optimal peak inspiratory flow rate is considered to be greater than or equal to 60 liters per minute. Uh, and you might be asking yourself, uh, this is all great, this is all well and good, uh, but how can we assess peak inspiratory flow rate? There are always PFTs, pulmonary function test, uh, or this device, which I personally use. So. No association with the device. I'm not trying to plug the device, uh, but I do use it. It is portable. I can use it in the inpatient setting when I'm rounding with internal medicine. We have COPD patients that are in for an exacerbation. Uh, maybe they're not in for an exacerbation. They just have COPD uh, and are in the hospital for a different reason. Uh, I can assess their peak inspiratory flow uh, at bedside, and I can recommend uh, a medication, an optimal medication for them to go home on. Uh, in the outpatient setting, now, I can use this same device um, to assess a patient's inhalation technique and assess their peak inspiratory flow. Uh, results are reproducible. The device itself is inexpensive. It's roughly $70. Uh, you can purchase uh, one-way disposable valves, uh, roughly like 60 or 70 cents a piece. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned or not, but the device is accurate uh, within 10% of what PFT, uh, PFT gives you. And again, I use it outpatient, inpatient setting. Speaking of, uh, before I forget, don't want to forget things, uh, using it in outpatient setting uh, and, and inhalation technique. Uh, when I have a patient sitting in front of me in the respiratory care clinic and they walk me through how they use their medication, whether that's a soft mist inhaler, a slow mist inhaler, an MDI, a DPI, when they get to the part where they say, and then I inhale, I have a disposable mouthpiece in my device uh, I turn the dial uh, to the setting uh, that equates to the, the, the device that they use in that patient setting, and I ask them to show me how they inhale. Um, some patients, per assessment, can't generate enough peak inspiratory flow, uh, can't generate optimal peak inspiratory flow, so then it becomes a conversation with that patient about. So moving on here, uh, 
emerging data tells us that suboptimal uh, PIFR is prevalent in patients with COPD, no matter the severe, severity of their obstruction, no matter their COPD classification, uh, and no matter the setting. There, there are good studies that indicate uh, suboptimal PIFR is present at a rate of roughly 40% uh, in patients with, with stable chronic COPD, uh, as well as patients that have been admitted to the hospital for an acute exacerbation of COPD before, they go, before they're discharged home. Suboptimal PIFR has been linked to poor COPD-related outcomes, and those poor COPD-related uh, COPD outcomes equate to uh, poor or inadequate symptom relief and increased exacerbations. Quickly, uh, to quickly walk you through a case, um, you see a 57-year-old patient with newly diagnosed, barometry confirmed, which may be rare, COPD in your ambulatory care clinic. Uh, you note that they were prescribed eumeclidinium a couple months ago for diagnosis. Uh, you scour their electronic medical record and, and cannot find an exacerbation or any point in time where they receive uh, systemic corticosteroids and or antibiotics. At diagnosis, their COPD assessment test score or CAT score was 12. And you note today upon questioning uh, that their, their CAT score is 11. The question is, you know, what is an appropriate assessment uh, and plan? So an initial assessment would be uh, they're symptomatic but no exacerbations. They're on the right-hand side. Uh, of, of the schematic that Dr. Pinter showed you earlier. They're gold group B. Uh, Alama is certainly appropriate therapy for this patient. Uh, then you would ask questions about their adherence. Uh, are you filling your script? Um, are you taking the medication? If not, you know, what is the issue? Is cost an issue? Can I work through some patient assistance uh, uh, programs uh, with you so that you can uh, obtain your medication and, and hopefully use your medication? Um, we would always assess technique, just as I mentioned earlier, walk me through the steps of using this device. And then when they say this is, and then I inhale, you hand them your, your in-check device uh, with the setting correct on it and ask them to show you how they inhale. So when they show you how they inhale, uh, you obtain a, a PIFR of 35 liters per minute. You know, what is your plan? Uh, considering this is the elliptic device and uh, a minimal peak inspiratory flow rate is 30 liters per minute, you could consider teaching them uh, how to better inhale from that medication, sharp, uh, a, a forceful inhalation, uh, fast inhalation from the word go, and then the deep inhalation, as deep an inhalation as possible. Or you could consider switching them to, again, uh, a slow mist or soft mist inhaler or nebulized therapy or an MDI with a valve holding chamber. Uh, flipped it a little bit, walked the peak inspiratory flow rate was 55 liters per minute. Uh, Again, you could counsel them on how to improve that possibly by 10 milliliters, 15 milliliters or so with a sharp or fast inhalation, uh, and, and they could stay on eumeclidinium provided that they are adherent to the medication. PIFR take-homes, uh, don't, don't want to uh, tread here too long, but adequate PIFR is necessary to optimize uh, DPI, like medication delivery. Uh, many patients uh, with COPD have suboptimal PIFR, roughly 40%, uh, uh, but the range in published studies is anywhere from 20 to 80%. Uh, suboptimal peak inspiratory flow has been linked to poor outcomes in COPD, increased rate of exacerbation, and obviously poor symptom management. Uh, and then PIFR should be assessed toward optimized pharmacotherapy in patients with COPD. And who better to consider medication delivery than us as pharmacists? Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. 
It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.